Welcome to the Hikmah Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Erica Makalak, writer, medievalist, and founder of Hikmah. So Hikmah means wisdom in Arabic, and Beit al-Hikmah means house of wisdom. And the house of wisdom is this idea in the cultural imagination that in the Islamic golden age of the Abbasid dynasty, there was this one roof under which all of this creativity and innovation happened, where theology and calligraphy and alchemy and toothbrushes all get invented and all of these other innovations happen in this hermetically sealed environment. But the reality is that that's not how change happens. Change happens through relationships and communication and understanding how the contributions that you make can respond to needs, challenges, and opportunities in the world. Our first season is called The Art of Alternatives because all of the speakers have in some way translated knowledge and values across contexts, and we're interested in understanding how those values and skills have translated from place to place. All of these speakers were guests in our Entrepreneurship for PhDs course, which was the pilot course that we ran in summer of 2021 with humanists who were interested in starting their own businesses and through that process thinking about the value that their academic work could bring to all kinds of clients and customers and new environments. Our first episode is an interview with Dr. Stacy Hartman, who is the director of the Publics Lab at City University New York. Stacy has been a wonderful mentor to me as well as generations of humanists. Um, and in this episode, she talks about mentorship, luck, and the importance of relationships in determining who you want to be and what you want to contribute to the world. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, hello and welcome to the Hikma Collective podcast. Uh, my name is Erica Makalak. I'm the founder of Hikma, and I'm very pleased to be here today with Stacy Hartman. Stacy is the director at the, of the Publics Lab at the Graduate Center, City University of New York. At the Publics Lab, she supports doctoral students who are interested in public-facing scholarship and a range of career pathways. Prior to coming to the Graduate Center, she was the project manager of Connected Academics, which focused on broadening career horizons for language and literature PhDs at the Modern Language Association. She holds a PhD in German Studies from Stanford University. Hi, Stacy. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me today. Oh, it's my it's my absolute pleasure. As you know, I've been a fan of your work for a very long time, and it's um yeah, it's it's wonderful to have you. So. I wonder if we could start with the story of your career. Will you tell us how you got to where you are? Sure. So I went into my PhD program in 2010, um, and I was pretty sure at, at that point I wanted to be a faculty member. Um, and a couple years in, I started to have these little sort of whispers of doubts um, that had to do with not wanting to live far away from my family, um, that had to do with um, also feeling like some of the research aspects um, of what I was doing, like while I really enjoyed them, they were a little bit too isolated for me. Um, and also, sort of some doubts about whether this was 
sort of the most good that I could be doing in the world. Um, mm. So those were sort of the three major sort of like doubts that I started to have as my degree progressed, even though I really enjoyed what I was doing. Um, and I felt well supported in most of the ways um, that that I needed at Stanford. And so um, in my third year, um, in my third year of the PhD, I started working with um, the Vice Provost for Graduate Education's office um, and with a woman named Chris Goldie. Um, and Chris has been studying graduate education for many, many years. Um, mm. She was um, on the Carnegie Initiative on the doctorate in the 90s, which was a major study that was done of doctoral education across disciplines. Um, and then she had come back to Stanford, which is where she did her PhD, to be Associate Vice Provost for Graduate Education. Um, and so I, I got connected with Chris through the chair of my department, um, which changed my life. <laughs> hmm. um, and I started working with Chris to do um, a speaker series of folks at Stanford who uh, had PhDs, but were in non-teaching roles. So they ran research centers, or they worked in the development office, or they worked in student advising. Um, and so I put together this speaker series with the support of uh, VPGE. Um, and, and that was sort of the first thing that I did in this area. And, and in doing that, I got paid to do about 35 informational interviews with folks around campus. Um, and I really mm. can't emphasize enough what what a boon that was for me to get to talk to people who had all sorts of super interesting jobs um, and who had had many of the same doubts that I had had. Um, and so that at the end of that experience, I sort of said, okay, I think I'm, I think I'm probably not going to be a faculty member. I think I'm going to do one of these other things. I want to stay at the university. I really believe in the mission of the university. I want to stay. I want to work with students. I don't necessarily need to teach in a classroom every day. Um, I'm sort of iffy on this research thing, um, and so um, at least research as it is in a literature department. Um, and so mm -hmm. I sort of made that decision. And then I did something that is a little unusual and was perhaps a little naive, which is that I announced this. <laughs> <laughs> to any number of people, um, including my entire committee. And when I had my proposal defense, we ended by talking extensively about what career paths I might be interested in. Um, mm. And I was very fortunate. The chair of my department um, was pretty supportive. Um, I think my advisor was sad um, that I wasn't going to be a faculty member, but he was also supportive. Um, and I had a number of people, I had a number of people around me who, you know, even if there were occasionally, even if there was occasionally pushback, none of that pushback had actual consequences for me. No one was going to yank my funding. No one was going to prevent me from doing things that I wanted to do. Um, and so, so I, I felt I felt like I was secure enough to be open about it, um, which then allowed other people to be open about it. I mean, it was it was 2013, 2014 at this point. The job market in literature had not recovered from the recession. It was not recovering from the recession. Um, and so, you know, anyone anyone who really was, I, I think, looking out for themselves had to be thinking about other other careers. 
Um, and so, so then, um, because I knew I didn't want to be a professor, I figured there was no point in sitting around and kind of wax on, wax offing my dissertation. So I was like, I want to get out. I want to get done. I'm tired of being a student. Um, it, it, you know, it, it wasn't just, it was, uh, I was tired of making, uh, living on a graduate student stipend. That was certainly part of it. Um, cause I had worked before I'd come back to grad school, but it was also like, I was tired of being treated like a student. Um, and so I was like, all right. I'm in my fifth year of funding. I'm not applying for sixth year funding. I'm going to get a job and I'm going to get out. Um, mm -hmm. And so I finished my dissertation that year. I was very determined. I did not apply for sixth year funding. Um, and I was applying for advising positions and, you know, all sorts of things. But then this, then Connected Academics, um, the MLA got the Connected Academics grant um, and in 2014 and advertised this position um, which was pro, pro, uh, project coordinator at the time. And so... Can you tell us a little bit more about what Connected Academics was or is? Oh, sure, sure, sure. So this was um, a, a Mellon Foundation-funded project. Um, I've been on Mellon money my entire post-PhD career. Um, wow. This was a Mellon Foundation-funded project to support expanded career horizons for language and literature PhDs. Um, it was a three-year grant. It was about one6 1.9 million, I want to say. Um, and they hired, uh, and the MLA, the Modern Language Association, which is the major scholarly and professional organization for folks in language and literature fields, um, was looking for someone to sort of run it. Um, and so I applied for that. It was in New York. I am from California originally. One of my main reasons for not wanting to go on a tenure track job hunt was that I wanted to stay where my, you know, where my family was, but I applied for this job anyway, figuring they were going to have hundreds of applications and I was never going to get it. Um, spoiler alert, they did not actually have hundreds of applications and I did get it, um, <laughs> which, and then I promptly had a panic attack because I'd been sort of relying on them not choosing me. Um, but, <laughs> but then I was sort of faced with this decision of, do I turn down this great job and stay in the Bay Area for something very uncertain? Or do I go to New York, um, which had a different type of uncertainty to it? So I decided to take the job um, and I moved to New York, which was not an easy decision. And it was also not an easy transition. Um, I really enjoyed the job, but it was, you know, moving I say this to people now, like moving is traumatic, right? Like you give up your whole life somewhere. Um, and unless you, it, you know, if you liked that life that you're giving up and you end up, you know, and you're, you're now you have to build a whole new life somewhere. Um, it's really, really, really hard. Um, and I cried a lot the first like three or four months that I was in New York. Um, mm. And so, so this is one of the things like, in, in academia, people are expected to bounce around a lot. And I think it's really, really harmful um, in a bunch of different ways. I think it's harmful financially, but I also think it's harmful psychologically and emotionally to just be expected to like pull up, pull up roots and like move someplace else. Like we're not really built to do that on a regular basis. Um, so how long, so I think, how long did it take you to feel like New York was home? It took me nine months to a year. Um, I had to, so I had a really terrible living situation when I first got to New York um, that was bad for me and bad for my cats. Um, and I got out of that in about three months. And once I moved to the second apartment, I felt a lot better. Um, it just, it was, um, it was, it was a much better situation for me, even though it was a totally illegal basement apartment in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a much better situation for me and, and for my cats, um, which sounds like a 
a small thing, but anyone who has pets will know that that's not a small thing. If, if you know they're not happy, then like, it's really hard for you to be happy too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, and then uh, I, uh, so, so yes. And then I moved to Jersey city and actually was able to, to, um, and, 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 and I'm, uh, and into the apartment that I've been in ever since. Um, so I was able to sort of like stabilize my life in New York, um, sort of within a year of arriving. And that made a big difference to me. Um, and I had a sense at that point that I was going to stay longer, that I would probably stay beyond the, um, the end of the grant at the MLA. Um, and so, so I did connect with academics for three years, which was a great experience. Um, you know, the, the MLA really has a national platform. Um, and so I really, I had the chance to talk, to sort of be, become sort of, um, I don't want to say, become an expert, um, which it sounds like it's tooting my own horn, own horn a little bit, but like to become an expert at the national level on issues of PhD career preparation. And I got to travel a lot and I got to talk to lots of different people and I got like this amazing platform um, and I really enjoyed the people I worked with at the MLA as well. Um, but then, you know, it was grant funded. It was a three-year grant and it sort of became time to figure out what was going to happen um, going forward, it became clear that there probably wasn't going to be another round of funding from Mellon. They were moving in a different direction um, and focusing particular campuses um, rather than the, the national professional organizations for the next round of funding. And so um, the MLA was going to have to sort of do this in-house. Um, and, and during the course of sort of trying to work out with them what that was going to look like, I, uh, this job at CUNY came up, the director of the public's lab and um, somebody I knew at the graduate center, let me know about it and said, you know, I've been involved in writing this grant. You should apply when the job comes up. And so the job came up at exactly the right moment for me, um, which was also true of the MLA job. The MLA job came up at exactly the right moment for me. Um, And I do believe there is an element of what I like to think of as serendipity um, in job hunts. You know, you have to be ready to go at the exact moment that the, you know, the job is available. Um, And sometimes, Mm. you know, sometimes it takes a while for that to happen. Um, There are ways that you can position yourself. So I I feel like luck, luck is a combination of serendipity and awareness. Um, And I'm Mm -hmm. happy to talk more about that. But I, you know, this job at, at the Graduate Center came up at exactly the right moment. So I want to pause there for a second and, and ask you a little bit more about that before we go on, because you're hitting on an interesting point that came up at our first HICMA office hours the other day. We were meeting with the director of UX research at Verizon, and, and many of the participants who were there had in mind a very specific role that they were thinking about applying for, or, or maybe not a specific role, but they were wondering, how do I do the things that I'm doing during my PhD now to position myself for this one specific job later. So how do I redesign my course or the program that I'm running to be exactly ready for this, this position that I have in mind that I will apply for when I graduate. But I mean, anecdotally. How particular a position are we talking about? Are we talking about a specific job at a specific organization? Um, you know, it was a mix of folks. I think uh, some people were thinking of a particular kind of role, like I want to be a UX researcher, or some people okay. were thinking at a particular mm-hmm. organization. But I mean, anecdotally, my experience has been that a lot of us end up finding ourselves in jobs that for various reasons, call it serendipity or, you know, other trade-offs that we make uh, that aren't the jobs that we expected to have. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Bef- before we keep talking about your career, like what 
what are the things from your PhD that translated? What do you think prepared you to be ready for those opportunities? That's a really good uh, question. So for, for my job at the MLA, it was clearly the work that I had done with the Vice Provost for Graduate Education's office, running a speaker series of folks at Stanford who had PhDs but were not in teaching roles. That that is probably what got me in the in my got my foot in the door. Um, if I had not done that work, I'm not sure that they would have really looked at me. Um, although I also had, I had a I, I always had a side gig going right, and so they were like, oh, this is someone who always has a side gig going, seems like she has been really interested in different things. This isn't, it. you know, I think part of it was that my, my profile made it clear that I was not applying to this job as a backup, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that is, part of it is, is, you know, and I think this is a question that hiring managers always have about PhDs. Are you doing this as a backup to the thing that you actually wanna be doing? No one wants to be your plan B. <laughs> Okay. This may be the reality, right? Like it may be the reality that what you really want is a tenure track job, but you are applying to other things. Um, but I would say, you know, whatever you can do, not just in your application, but in, in sort of your preparation to make it clear that like, it's not a plan B, right, is, is, is good for you, right? And so I had done a bunch of this stuff um, at Stanford that was directly applicable to my, to my uh, role at MLA. Um, and then when, you know, and then by the time I, it's a little bit different once you, it's a little bit different once you get beyond the first job, um, you know, mm -hmm. so I was, I was a good candidate for the job at CUNY because of what I had done at MLA, not because of what I had done for in my PhD. Um, so, Although I think like research, I mean, research skills, teaching skills, you know, I, I've translated, you know, one thing that you can do is like think about your teaching as facilitation, right? Yeah. And, and I taught language at Stanford and actually language teaching is great experience for facilitation because mm -hmm. the idea behind um, at least the type of language teaching that we did at Stanford was, um, you know, you get other people to talk, you know, you know, you, you know in a 50 minute class, the idea is that the students talk for 40 minutes um, and, and you talk for maybe 10 at most, right, over yeah. the course of the hour. Totally. So if you can if you can translate, you know, sorts of th those sorts of things into like skills that employers are looking for. Um, and if you can get experience that, um, you know, even if it's sort of not directly in what you're doing, right? Even if like these were side gigs that I had, right? If you can cultivate cultivate side gigs that are um, uh, that show that you have a genuine interest <laughs> in the job that you want to do, and you're not doing it as a plan B, I think that's really helpful for for, for helpful when you go to apply for jobs. And when you say when you talk about that idea of no, no one wants to be the plan B, does that mean that you really need to have a fixed idea of what your plan A is or can you be more exploratory? How do you, how do you frame something as a plan A that is an opportunity that you hadn't thought of before, but that actually sounds pretty cool? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's fine. I think, I think what, what, what serves PhDs really, really, really well is curiosity and an openness, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I and this goes against our training a little bit because I think we're taught to be quite focused, especially once we once we finish co- coursework and move on to the dissertation. Um, and and it's sort of like, oh, you need to focus. You need to focus. Actually, um, you know, one of the things that I had going for me was that I've always had a little bit of intellectual ADD. Um, and I've always sort of like <laughs> followed my nose to whatever I found particularly interesting. Um, and I never worried that much about, oh, does this like fit a coherent, like, does this make my research look coherent? It's like, well, I'm interested in, I'm interested in, um, you know, cognitive science and, and literature, or I'm interested in, um, you know, post, you know, postmodernism as an emotional response to fascism. And then I like found a way to blend the two together in my dissertation, um, you know, and so, I think um, and there were people in my program who were much more focused than I was, right? They came in with an idea of what they wanted to study, and then that was what they studied. That was what they wrote the dissertation on. Um, and in some ways, I'm like, well, that would be a lot easier, right? <laughs> like if I never changed my mind. And on the other hand, I was like, well, that also seems really boring. Um, and so <laughs> I think, I think, you know, letting yourself follow your nose um, to the things that really interest you um, and, and not let people tell you, oh, you're, you're getting distracted, right? Just, I, I personally think that distraction is a good thing. Like if you're mm-hmm. like, like, go look at the shiny object and see what it is. The shiny object might lead you in a direction that you never expected. Um, so I think all of this, like idea that we have to focus and not get distracted. Like, I understand that like people want to, people want people to move through and not, um, you know, not take 10 years to finish. I also recommend not taking 10 years to finish, but (laughs) intellectual curiosity, you know, keeping an eye out about what's, what's going on in the periphery. Um, You can totally cut this out, but I, there's a great study about (laughs) luck by this guy named Richard Weisman. It's from like 2003. Um, I love this study. So Weisman gave so he had a whole bunch of tests, you know, all his, he, he asked his test subjects to identify as either lucky or unlucky, to self-identify as either lucky or unlucky people. Huh. And then he gave them all a newspaper and he said, all right, your task is to find out how many photographs are in this newspaper. And so they all start going through and counting, counting photographs. And what he found was that the self-identified lucky people got to the answer much faster And it wasn't because they were counting faster. It was because Mm. on the second page in very, very large type, like, like an inch or two inch large type, it said, there are 43 photographs in this newspaper. You can stop counting. (laughs) And the lucky people were scanning the whole time, right? They weren't just counting photographs. They were actually scanning the whole time. Uh, And the uh self-identified unlucky people got tunnel vision focused on counting the photographs because that's what they thought the task was. And so I think there is a danger of graduate school giving us tunnel vision Hmm. and saying, you know, this is the very narrow task that you are here to do. Right. When in it, in fact, I think the key to, you know, there is serendipity, the right job at the right time has to be open, you know, but it, you also have to be aware of what is happening in the periphery. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it, even if even if it's something like 
actually reading your email. I had a lot of colleagues who like didn't read their email and were therefore not aware of opportunities that were happening on campus. And I kept up with my email and I read my email. And so I knew when there were workshops happening that I was interested in, I knew mm-hmm. like this job, the job at MLA landed in my email box. I was like, oh, that's interesting, right? Mm-hmm. So just being aware of and curious about what is happening around you is a way in which you can actually generate more serendipity for yourself. It's really funny that you say that. I did exactly what you said. I ignored any email that wasn't directly relevant to my dissertation for the last few years of my degree. And then it was only when I got my first office job that I started really paying attention to, you know, they had great professional development programs. We had this quasi-union that did workshops on meeting facilitation and data visualization and all this stuff. And once I had that other job, then I started paying attention. But I was working in the admin side in higher ed. If I had paid more attention to what was happening in my university on the admin side while I was there as a student, I would have been able to hit the ground running so much faster. Um, Mm -hmm. Just understanding that context and learning how to understand how organizations work, too, I think is part of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Now, the the person I'm thinking of who I had this, I actually had like a little mini argument, not a, not a, serious argument but I remember being I remember telling a friend I was like you have to read your email and this other friend goes no you don't she is now a tenure track professor somewhere (laughs) (laughs) so so you know I think it served her okay that she that 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 she had but but she also she got lucky in a different way Um, yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. so but that tenure track luckiness right is as we know um has always been a little hard to come by and is getting Mm -hmm. harder now. So what advice would you give to someone who wants to have that open conversation with their advisor about their career development? That's a good question. So part of it is knowing who you're dealing with. Um, And I have... I have a I, I have a rule, um, which I have borrowed from um, Professor Bianca Williams, who is the faculty lead on my project at um, at the Graduate Center. Um, mm-hmm. And this rule is, um, can I swear? Yeah. This the rule is no divas, no assholes. <laughs> um, and so, <laughs> so uh, and I highly recommend that people follow this rule to the best of their ability when putting their committee together. Now, sometimes you can't do this, but I, so the adapted rule for committee formation is you get one diva or, or asshole. The rest have to be nice people. (laughs) (laughs) And I really, I cannot stress this enough. Um, Otherwise Uh it becomes like the Westminster dog show, but with cats, like it is just this like crazy experience trying to like get your committee. Everyone's out of the country. Nobody like, you know, you just, you, you get one superstar who's kind of a jerk and then everyone else on your committee has to be nice people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, and I, I realize this can be, this can be a tough needle to thread depending on your department. I understand that. Um, but I really do highly recommend this. And I had on my committee, you know, nice people. Um, and, and so, um, I felt pretty comfortable, um, going to pretty much all of them, um, about what I, about my, my career ambitions. Um, and so, you know, and, and it might not be if you're, if the superstar jerk is your advisor, you might end up going to other people, 
about about career stuff um or there might be you know or you might um cultivate mentorship in other places on campus so that's mm-hmm. a, that's another piece of advice is you know through other you know through the 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 my work at VPGE like Chris Goldie became um a mentor for me she's still a mentor for me like we still talk regularly she hooded me at my graduation mm-hmm. when my entire committee forgot i was graduating um oh. and so it was you know and so that that relationship um is is in many ways more important to me now than the relationships with my advisors and, and my committee like even though I like, I still see them when I go to like the MLA convention I still email with them on occasion. Um, but, but the, the relationship that is professionally important and personally important as well, but professionally important to me now is the one that I cultivated with somebody who was, you know, an administrator who was not in my department at all and who could give me a very different type of mentorship. So that's the other thing I would say is don't, don't think of your committee as the be all and end all of mentorship, you know, really cultivate a network of mentors who all bring a little bit of something different to the table. Um, And that, that will serve you a lot better than trying to rely on your committee, but also like try to put together a committee of like, nice decent people that think of you as a person and not just like <laughs> another degree to confer or you know a potential like feather in their cap right mm-hmm. and so how have you i love i love that th- thread of mentorship how have you found mentors outside of the academy since you graduated um so i had mentors when i was at you know, I had, I had people I worked with when I was at the, at the MLA um, who definitely served as mentors. Um, so I had a direct supervisor who was um, in charge of the project um, and we worked really well together. Um, and um, and he was, you know, and, and he was a friend and he was a mentor, um, but he had been at the MLA for 30 years and he couldn't tell me how to manage a career where I was probably not going to be at the MLA for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I made connections in the graduate career um, world, which is full of extremely nice people. Like people who do career development are just very, they're just like nice people. They tend to be very outgoing and positive. um, And they are just like, they're just, they're really supportive, nice people who obviously also tend to have an expertise in how to develop your career. Um, So Mm -hmm. I got some great mentorship through them. And I also, um, you know, continued to cultivate um, mentorship with, um, you know, the, the, the experience, the relationship that I had with Chris Goldie. Um, I will also say at a certain point, um, I think it becomes less about cultivating relationships with people who are senior to you and more about cultivating relationships to the with the folks that are sort of at your level. Um, Man, I was hoping you'd say that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and somebody said on Twitter recently, and I thought this was so, so, so right. And I can't remember who said it, but I could go look, I, I could go look that up um, after after this. But somebody said networking is not about connecting with people senior to you. It's about connecting with people. It's about connecting with your peers and then helping each other rise. Yeah. Um, And that I think is just, is critical. And I have through connected academics, which had a pro seminar um, and which was, you know, folks in the New York city area who were either in PhD programs or complete or had recently completed PhD programs who were interested in careers outside the Academy. I made 
I made great friends with the, the folks in the pro seminar. Um, and I was just out of my PhD. I didn't have any actual seniority to those folks. Like I was, it was, it was a totally random chance that I happened to be in charge of that pro seminar um, <laughs> in some ways. And so um, now many of them are in great positions doing all kinds of things. Um, and so that has become a network of peer mentors and, you know, and, and when I, you know, uh, when I'm interested in, in thinking about something new, I often reach out to folks in that network and say, hey, will you sit down with me? Um, and and mm. people are very generous with each other in that network. Um, and it's a little bit different with my with the fellows that I work with at, at CUNY. We have a fellowship program as well. It's different because um, I'm in a different type of role with them. I'm further, I'm, I'm further from my PhD than I was. Um, you know, it's, I'm, I'm not like friends with my fellows in the same way that I was friends with um, the folks in the pro seminar, but you know, in 10 or 15 years, when those folks have moved on to, I'm sure incredible careers, like, like those sorts of relationships change over time, right? Like even like my relationship with uh, mentors that I had when I was at Stanford have now changed a lot. And sometimes it runs in the other direction, right? Those, those relationships once, um, those relationships can become very bi-directional, even if it starts out as, um, you know, somebody senior to you, mentoring you. In 10 years, those relation, that, that mentorship can run in both directions. Um, mm -hmm. And that's one thing that I tell PhDs who are often very concerned about infringing on people's time or, or being a burden is, you know, those relationships change over time. You might feel like you don't have anything to offer that person right now, but you don't know what's going to happen in 10 or 15 years. And so, you know, in some ways, like if you, you know, because if people feel like, oh, well, I can't give back to them right in this moment. It's like, yeah, but you don't know where you're going to be in 10 or 15 years. And that's okay. You know, the relation, the, the, a good mentorship relationship is sort of longitudinal. Um, and so even if you might not be in a position to do anything for that person right now, um, I bet you will be someday, you know, um, and even if it doesn't, like, there's no expectation of that in, in, in a mentorship relationship. Yeah, I agree with you. I would say the caveat there is still make sure that you're expressing your gratitude for oh, your generosity time now. Yes, yeah. totally, totally, totally. Gratitude, yeah. enthusiasm, and curiosity are the three tools that people really need in their tool belt. Yeah, I love that. I I want to pivot for, we sort of reconnected this year at a conference at CUNY virtually uh, mm -hmm. a couple months ago, and we were in this breakout room where a bunch of us had gotten sort of our careers just catalyzed by interactions with you. And someone made a joke in that room that it was six degrees of Stacey Hartman because you've been so, you've been so active in this space that you've just paved so much of a foundation for, for many of us. And for me, it was the first time we met, I was in a giant crowd and I don't think you probably would remember, but I've, I've shared this with you before that it was Philly MLA, the Modern Language Association Conference in 2017 in Philadelphia and you gave a LinkedIn workshop through Connected Academics that was awesome. And it was awesome, not just because it had never occurred to me that I probably needed a LinkedIn profile, and that was indeed the mechanism that led me to um, a lot of the jobs that I applied for and got mm -hmm. either got offered or got far in the process, but also because of the way that you framed skill translation. It wasn't just about this social media tool and how to use it. It was about 
thinking through how to position your skills for other audiences. And I had Mm -hmm. never put that rhetorical lens on it until that moment. And this was me a few months before graduation. And it was just a total game changer that made me able to have informational interviews and think about how I was presenting my work. Um, So I wonder if you could tell us, I know that you've continued to help people figure out how to navigate how they present themselves and particularly on social media. What advice do you typically give to graduate students who are trying to break, break outside the academy? Let's see here. Um, uh, and I, by the way, I just want to say that it, it, it means a lot for you to say that like that, that workshop, um, you know, really helped you because it is, it is sort of when you do those sorts of workshops, it's sort of unusual to like get anything back um, in terms of feedback or anything. And sometimes you think, oh, did that help anyone? So I'm really, um, I'm really grateful to you for, for saying that. Um, so oh, my pleasure. I often, so one of the things that I often tell um, people who are current PhD students is to sort of focus on the very top of the LinkedIn profile. Um, and the top of the LinkedIn profile tends to be headshot, uh, headline, and then the summary. Um, and you're, and people make a couple different mistakes. So headshots, I, I generally say like, you want people to be able to see your eyes right? You want, so you don't mm-hmm. want to have sunglasses. You, you want to be, I, I think it's helpful to be smiling. Um, either, either a nice headshot where you can see your eyes and you're smiling or a shot of you in action doing something, right? So I know folks who have great photos on LinkedIn of like them, like giving a lecture or facilitating or like whatever. And those are good too. So either an action shot or a nice headshot. Um, I think a a selfie is fine, but you kind of don't want to be able to see that it's a selfie. Um, Yeah. Like get a selfie stick. Come on. Yeah. Or, or just, I mean, I'm pretty good with my arm out. Right. But you don't want to be able to like see the (laughs) arm or anyway. So Um, And then, um, and then the headline tends to be people often, I often see PhD students who have the word, have the words, the word student in their headline. And I would say definitely, like, get rid of the word student altogether, it makes you sound Mm -hmm. less experienced, and a lot younger than you probably are. Um, And so, you know, I think PhD candidate is fine. Doctoral researcher is also fine. but what I actually would recommend doing with the doing with your headline is playing around with some combination of um, of uh, labels for yourself, right? Like, are you a teacher? Are you a facilitator? Are you a researcher? Are you a writer? Are you um, whatever you might be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and what you know, and and use that combination of use it maybe three. Um, of those sorts of labels to um, to put yourself out there in the way that you want to be perceived, right? Doctoral mm-hmm. researcher is fine. It doesn't actually tell people outside of academia that much about what you do. So right. if you say instead, you know, that you're a writer, you're, you're a writer, a researcher, and a facilitator, right? That gives a much better idea of, of and it gives a much more concrete idea of what you do and who you are than doctoral researcher, even though those things might be contained by that label. So that's mm-hmm. the one thing I, that's the thing I would say about the headline. Um, and then wait, the wait, 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 before you go on, let me ask you, do you have three words, Stacey? Do you know what they are? Oh God, I have to go to my LinkedIn profile <laughs> now. <laughs> what, are the, what, are, what is my current LinkedIn? What is my current LinkedIn? Mine is project manager, facilitator, and strategic thinker. 
Yeah, I like that. Um, mm-hmm. It's what it what's what it currently is. Um, so there's lots of ways to 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 tweak that, you know, and you can play around with different iterations of it. Um, so then, the summary. I think this is the most underutilized uh, part of the LinkedIn profile, and people will sometimes just use it like it's a, a summary of their um, a summary of their uh, resume, right? And I think this is a real. I think that's a missed opportunity. I think the best way to use mm-hmm. the summary is to say this is a chance for me to narrativize my experience um, and who I am, and use it to talk about. Um, use it to connect in particular what you do as a PhD with what you want to be doing afterwards um, and use it as a way of making sense of that for for people who might be visiting your profile, but also for yourself. Like mm-hmm. this is a great way to sort of a great, a great place to kind of practice your self narrative. Who are you? What do you want to be doing? How do you connect that to the work that you have been doing? Um, and I think that that exercise, the, the writing exercise of the LinkedIn summary, which is pretty short, I can't remember what their current character character limit is, but it's a pretty short character limit. Um, but using it as a place to um, talk about what I think of as superpowers, right? Talk about the, talk about your superpowers and connect them to what you are doing and what you want to be doing. Um, I think those are, um, I think that's a, that's the LinkedIn summary is a great, a great place to start doing that. Um, and LinkedIn, mm-hmm. LinkedIn profiles are works in progress. You're going to tweak them going forward it's it's not really done um but uh i think it's a i think it's a really useful tool for getting yourself out there um and making yourself visible to people who might want to hire you even in a passive kind of way like just by being visible and having their little open to work label on your on your profile but then also starting to do you know doing the work for yourself of, of sort of making sense of who you are and what you've been doing and who you want to be and what you want to do. Um, I think LinkedIn profiles are useful for that. So one question I've received from a number of postdocs and other recent graduates is whether or not to mention their PhD. You, you often see PhDs who put their name, comma, PhD in their LinkedIn mm-hmm. profile. What, do you have advice for folks on when you're moving beyond academia how much to emphasize your degree? I don't, I personally do not recommend to people that they hide their PhD. There are people who give that advice. I do not. Um, I, I, I understand why people give that advice, but I just, I don't think that it is super, I don't think it's helpful um, in many ways, because that it's like, well, what did you do for those seven years? <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's like, and I mean, I, you know, it's like, well, I was, I was a teacher and a researcher. Okay. But what you actually were, were was doing your PhD. Um, and so I don't recommend that people hide the PhD. Um, I have my PhD on my LinkedIn profile. If I started applying to jobs in like, well, yeah, even if I started applying to jobs in tech companies, I think it is likely that I would apply to jobs where my PhD was going to be useful, right? Like I might apply for like learning and development roles, or I might apply for like university liaison roles. Um, and and in those situations, my PhD is going to be really helpful. Um, mm-hmm. And so I I don't I would encourage people not to assume that the PhD is a problem. 
Um, because I don't, because in many situations, I don't think it is. Um, Mm -hmm. The exception might be in situations where they're using an algorithm for deciding who moves forward. And PhDs, especially in the humanities, are getting weeded out. Um, Mm. And so that can be a little bit difficult, but I'm not sure that it would be helped by taking the PhD off. Yeah, well, and I think some of the piece there, right, it's it's not so much about hiding your degree, it's about translating your skills so that and, and your experiences so that mm-hmm. they are intelligible to whoever the right. employer is. So those algorithms often focus on word association, and are you able yeah. to use the language in the job description to describe what you've done? You know, right. like government jobs do this too, where they're looking for, I don't, I don't know whether they're always using computers or just one-to-one matching, but you have to mm-hmm. be so careful about the process that you're yeah. looking for exact alignment. And if you're a PhD in English, you can decode a job description and determine which of those points on the job description can be sort of reverse engineered mm-hmm. to and, and explain through the skills that you've had. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that's a really good point. The other thing I would say is you can't, outside the academy, you can't lean on your PhD. You have to, like, like you're going to need to bring other things to the table, but you also are going to have to do, I think this is sort of what you were talking about, you have to do interpretive work, right? Mm -hmm. So I remember the first time that the MLA ran a job fair at um, at its annual convention, and one of the some of the feedback that we got from employers afterwards was people kept coming up and saying to me, where would a Ph.D. fit in at your organization? Mm-hmm. And this is not a great question to ask an employer, because, first of all, it makes them do all <laughs> of that interpretive work. Right? right. They have to do all of the interpretive work of figuring out where you might fit in at their organization when actually that work should be on that a lot of that work needs to be on the job applicant right and Mm -hmm. also like what is contained in the phrase a phd um what does that Mm -hmm. mean um it varies quite a bit from person to person um and there's no way for the hiring manager or or whoever you're talking to to know what you mean by that right um and some phds you know i mean phds are not a monolith some people love research some people love teaching some people um you know really like committee work (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, some, it, it, you know, it really depends. Um, and so you need to do some of that interpretive work, um, of, of what is, you know, what is the PhD, but also who are you as a PhD? Um, and so that, that interpretive work is really, really, really important. And you can't lean on the PhD the way that you would, um, in an academic context to do that work for you and to convey all that we, we understand is conveyed by a PhD. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's funny because once you've done that work and you're sort of hired on the merits of the way that you're able to make the case that you are the right person for that job, no one then says, oh, but you have a PhD, or maybe not no one, but probably jobs that you actually want are not going to say, oh, but because you also have a PhD, uh, you know, we we don't actually want you. If you've demonstrated that you've built those skills through your degree, well, fantastic. And you have a PhD too cool as long as you're not a jerk on the job and and you don't do all of the things that we think of as stereotypes of PhD behavior it's not gonna it's not gonna get in your way I'm a medievalist and I haven't worked actively in anything remotely related to you know the middle ages since I graduated but it's funny I I really credit the things that I learned during my PhD especially the facilitation Mm -hmm. piece that you're talking about but also just 
the interdisciplinarity and the the need to find patterns and different ways of thinking and kind of mesh them all into one Mm -hmm. one context like that that ability to navigate contexts is something that I definitely learned during my degree and just having to figure out how different people think and how translation works and how ideas travel Uh, but when I when I talk to people who I'm working with who are way outside my discipline and it comes up that I'm a medievalist they're always, it's, it's like I'm some, you know, shiny unicorn. They're like, oh, really? And they, they assume it has nothing I've to do. I've never met one of those. <laughs> yeah. yeah, really? You know, my, yeah. So, you know, you meet these people who are working in computer science or nuclear physics or whatever, and you say, oh, and I'm a medievalist. And at this point in my career, it typically comes up three quarters of the way through the conversation, if it comes up at all. And it's, but it's not the, it's not the fact that I studied Chaucer that is, my selling point. It's the fact that I learned all of these skills and can do all of these things. And then since then have developed a track record of applying those skills in other ways. Um, and the medievalist thing is just like, Oh, really cool. And I just become this, you know, you know, interesting creature in addition to the, the professional that they know. So I think it, it comes in handy later as something that other people may think of as a curiosity, but you yourself know is integral to your work as a professional. Right. And the fact that other people don't get it, that's okay. Like, it doesn't matter that other people don't fully understand what your degree, like, meant for, meant for what you're doing now. It's okay. I mean, because you're going to make all sorts of connections that they, that other people aren't going to make. You know, I know lots of other medievalists doing all sorts of different things and they can absolutely tell you what their degree meant, um, has meant to, has meant for them and what it has helped them do. Um, But those things are, are definitely not obvious to other people and that's okay. Yeah, exactly. So I wonder if I could ask you as we close a few more questions about, Social media, not so much from the perspective of presenting yourself, but of how you engage with communities online. So mm-hmm. what advice do you give to job seekers who are engaging with others on the Internet? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I treat Twitter. So my Twitter is currently locked down, actually. Um, and, and it's not for it's not for any particular. <laughs> this is it's mostly for me, um, because I have a hard time not arguing with people on the Internet. Um, <laughs> and so I have removed my ability to argue with people on the Internet, um, both for the sake of my time and my sanity. Um, and I would say, you know, this is something to think about. If you are someone like me who enjoys arguing with someone who is wrong on the internet because people are wrong on the internet every day, just all over the place, just so, so deeply wrong every day. Um, You know, you might think about if you're, if you're having a job search, you might want to think about whether there are ways that you want to temper some of that. Um, If you are someone who has very been very critical of your university on social media, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I would think, how is an, how is a potential employer going to perceive that criticism, right? If they look at my mm. Twitter and I have been very critical of my university and universities deserve this, right? Like even the best universities who treat their people as well as we can possibly expect um, under our current system, like they deserve serious criticism. Um, you know, they are, universities have, they are, you know, they're, institutions with all of the accompanying, you know, white supremacist, patriarchal, capitalist 
problems that accompany any institutions um, in our current in our current environment. So nothing wrong with criticizing your university. But if I'm an employer and I'm looking at you as a potential employee and I look at your Twitter and I see a lot of criticism, I might wonder, are you also going to talk about our organization that way? Mm. Um, and I will say that most organizations are less tolerant of that from their employees than universities tend to be, especially from faculty and students. Um, so that is something I would think about is, you know, treat Twitter, I treat Twitter, especially now, as like, assuming that my colleagues um, can over can quote overhear anything that I'm saying mm -hmm. on Twitter because they can. Um, and so, you know, that would be one thing I would say is um, I don't think you can never, I don't think you can, you know, like I wouldn't say like never argue with somebody on the internet or, um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say like never criticize your university, like definitely not. But, but if you are in the middle of an active job hunt, um, sometimes locking down your Twitter is a good idea or just going through and doing a little bit of cleanup um, just so that if somebody glances at your Twitter that they, you know, they see what they see looks, they, what they see is like fairly innocuous is what I would say. Um, you know, but, but, but I think there's a lot of latitude within that, right? Like, I think there's a lot of latitude. I mean, certainly I think, you know, most organizations would be totally fine with like social justice work, right? Um, and, you know, and, and um, you know, I mean, organizations vary depending on their own missions. Um, but I think, uh, you know, most of them are, most of them would be fine with like some, um, you know, like some, some political stuff on, on a Twitter, like most of them would be depending on, um, I mean, it's varies a little bit from organization to organization. I just, um, you know, conflict and criticism are the two things that I would sort of be careful of if you are doing, um, if you're actively job searching. Mm -hmm. And being mindful of how things can be taken out of context. If you're writing exactly. one tweet in an 18 tweet thread and it gets retweeted on its own, make sure you know how it's going to look on its own or how any one of those 18 would look by itself. Exactly. Yep, yeah, that's very true too. Yeah. What about things that work well for people on social media? Have you seen any job seekers or recent graduates who really knocked it out of the park with the way that they engage? Yeah. So I think, so, I mean, a lot of people post jobs to Twitter now, so it's actually a great place to find out, to, to follow organizations that you're interested in um, and keep an eye out for jobs that, and opportunities that they might be posting. Um, this is one thing that I would say. Um, and then also, you know, connect with people who are, it's a really easy way to connect with people who are doing really interesting work um, that you want to know more about that might be similar to work that you want to do. Um, and, and certainly there are lots of people who have had, who have gotten informational interviews through, through Twitter um, and who have even gotten jobs through Twitter. It's a fairly low threshold, low barrier to entry way to start listening in on other types of conversations. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think Twitter is really good for is like, you can listen in on almost anything on Twitter um, and get an idea of what they're going on and what's going on there. And you can start to, you know, get an idea of how they talk, how like folks in UX talk about UX, right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and start to adapt some of that language um, to how you, you know, to your cover letters and to your resume and, um, and all of that, in addition to making connections with those folks. 
Yeah, I think that's a great point. You really learn how to translate the context and also the kinds of people that you would want to engage mm -hmm. with. And, and often people are tweeting resources that become really useful as well. Mm. Thanks, yeah. Stacey. All right. Any, any last advice for with listeners, parting words, things you wish I'd asked you? Um, hmm. I would say, so when I have asked people in the past, what do you wish you had known? Um, when you were job hunting or when you, when you finished your PhD and sort of started out. And the answer that sticks out to me is, I wish I'd known it was going to be okay. Mm. And so what I want to convey to, to listeners is that the odds are very good that it's going to be okay. <laughs> um, I won't say that it's good, for, that it works out perfectly for everyone. And I, I won't say that it's gonna work out exactly the way that you think that it will, but your odds are very good, especially since you have, you have already made the really tough decision, which is to take seriously um, jobs beyond the academy. Um, and so your odd, the odds are really good that it's gonna be okay for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I love that. Um, well, it's been wonderful to have you. I'm really grateful for your time. Um, and yeah, just as always, really great, inspiring, energizing conversation. So thanks so much, Stacey. Well, thank you so much. This was great. I really enjoyed it. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hikma Collective podcast. I'm your host, Erica Makalak, writer, medievalist, and founder of Hikma. The production of this episode was led by our fearless creative director, Sophia Van Hees, in collaboration with Nicole Marklind, Dashara Green, Eufemia Baltasare, and Matthew Tomkinson. Matthew composed the original music you hear now in his capacity as the 2022 HICMA Artist in Residence. This podcast has been made possible with generous support from Innovate BC, Tech Nation, and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. You can find show notes, links, and transcripts at www.hikma.studio slash podcast. Hikma is situated on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Hunkamedum-speaking Musqueam people. We are grateful to be here and to share this space with you. Our speakers, team members, and listeners are based all over the world, and wherever you're listening, we encourage you to learn more about whose lands you're on. 